And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, it is so good to open up your word and find these particular words. It's not the expectation of sinners. Our instinctive expectation is not that we will have grace, but judgment. To know that you have done all that was required for justice. And you have done it through your Son. And to see how it all came about, how he accomplished the work that you gave him to do, when we are careful, when we are humble, when we are truly honest with your word, it staggers us. And our hearts are filled with thanksgiving. Truly, this is good news of great joy. And we praise your name. I pray, Father, that you would give to us your Holy Spirit, that we would receive this news in our hearts today as the good news it is. And I pray that our response would be joy. And following the lead of the shepherds, I pray that we would glorify you in heaven and we would tell the world of what you have done. Father, please, again, I pray, give to us your spirit. We know your promises. We claim them. Give to us your spirit. For your name's sake. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Who do you think these shepherds were? What does your imagination say about them and, and their character? I'm wondering which of the shepherds was bored on this particular night before the angel appeared. I wonder who was complaining. I wonder who was worried. I wonder who was 
struggling with what they wouldn't have called then, but what we would call today, depression. I wonder who was angry. I wonder whose imagination even was fired with lust. I'm not saying that these were terribly wicked men as we would, you know, see them on the surface or anything like that. I am certainly not saying, obviously, that they were the most godly men. I'm just saying that they were men. They were common men. They were any man on any night. So to think about what their particular frame of mind was and just the possibilities, I mean, does that bother you? I I hope not. Because if it did, I would say, who do you think that the gospel is for? If God waited for these men to be pure, he'd still be waiting. The angel never would have appeared. And so I wonder about the struggles and the hopes in their hearts. I wonder what their prayers were on that particular night or if they forgot to pray that particular night. I wonder what hopes concerning the Messiah were woven into their hearts and their thoughts. All just before the angel appeared. These were not men of impeccable credentials, spiritual or otherwise. Again, these were common men. This is any man on any night, and they needed a Savior as badly as anyone has ever needed a Savior. But this night, these men, well, let me say it this way, this night and these men were taken over by a Savior. And when they were taken over by Christ, the news of Christ and the sight of Christ, they would never be the same. They could not keep still. And they could not keep silent about what they had heard and what they had seen. It is astonishing to them. They are staggered that this, the coming of Christ, salvation through Christ, the reign of Christ, has something to do with them. It's astonishing that this has to do with them. So they can't keep silent. This is for them. Do you believe as the shepherds believed? Are you certain that Jesus is yours? What is your response? Do you believe, are you certain in your heart that he is yours? So what is your response? What is the response of your words? What is the response of your life? We have this example, this model to follow in the shepherds in their response to Jesus. That they cannot keep still. They cannot keep silent. They glorify God in heaven and they proceed to tell the world. I think the same response is called for in all of the people of God. The Savior has come. Let's sing to God. Let's tell the world. Our Savior has come. Look back at verses 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Not a one of these shepherds expected anything out of the ordinary on the night that the angel came. 
I'm just going to throw out a time, okay? What was happening at 9.58? Nothing. It was ordinary. It was uneventful. At 9.59, an angel is there, has appeared, and they are engulfed in the light of the glory of God. Now, they weren't expecting anything at 9.58. Just throwing out a number again. Time. 9.59, they are expecting something. And you can tell what they are expecting by their response. Because what is the instinctive expectation of a sinner who stands engulfed in the light of the glory of God and before whom there is one of God's mighty warrior messengers. Sinners expect to be consumed. And that's exactly what these shepherds are expecting. They're filled with megaphobia. Those were, that's the Greek words. Great fear. Who for their fear forgets to breathe? whose knees give out, who cries out, which of them is about to hightail it out of there when the angel speaks. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not judgment, but grace. Grace has come to these men. These are not the words that they expected. The angel is not taking with them the tone that they expected. The angel is speaking to them reassuringly. The angel is speaking warmly, joyfully, and triumphantly. The angel is actually glad to be there with them. The angel hasn't come with the sword to consume them, to destroy them. The angel is glad to be with these men. It's not time for them to be filled with great fear. It is time for them to be filled to overflowing with great joy. Because there is good news. There is gospel for all the people. And the angel has come to these particular individuals common men, all of them, to proclaim this glorious news. Verse 11. For unto you, the angel declares, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, if you're like me, and you have been in this particular passage a bunch since you were a little kid, then I think you're going to have the struggle that I have. When you just read through this text, these words are so familiar that there's no penetration. It's like water on a duck's back. It just rolls right off of you. And we need to resist that. Because these are the most glorious words that have been spoken in all of history. The Christ, the Savior, the Lord is born. So resist just letting it roll off you, please. If it's like water off a duck's back, you need to dive into it. And you need to do so with your mouth wide open. 
Now, I want you to consider just one word from the original that makes two in English. It says, unto you. Unto you. For unto you is born this day. Now stop. Don't read any further. How, how odd is that phrasing? I mean, it's very weird. What do you mean, unto me? Think about a birth announcement and how it's not worded. The birth announcement doesn't say, a baby has been born to Mike, if Mike is of no family relation. Mike has had a significant number of babies, but this particular baby is not born to Mike because Mike's not related to this one. Right? A baby boy is born to his mother and father, and possibly in the birth announcement it will include grandparents and siblings, if there are any. So the angel should be saying, if this is just a regular typical birth, the angel should be announcing to these shepherds, for unto Mary and Joseph is born this day in the city of David. And that would be a normal announcement. But if that was the case, the shepherds would be responding, okay, well, that's really sweet. That's nice for Mary and Joseph. But why are you telling us? Why all of this drama? You have freaked us out, seriously. That's what they would be saying. Now think back to Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son. Gabriel said to Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And that's to be expected. Because Zechariah is related to that baby boy. In fact, it's the same kind of word, only singular rather than plural, to Zechariah. It says, it could be translated, your, your wife Elizabeth will bear to you a son. Again, that's expected. If, let's say, um, word came to the neighbors around Zechariah and Elizabeth that the baby had, had been born, the, the angel wouldn't say, um, a, a baby has been born to you in Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. Wouldn't say that. But think about this announcement again to the shepherds. For unto you is born. Imagine picking up a, a copy of the Nazareth News the next day up in Galilee. And you're reading through the different, you know, obituaries and birth announcements and things like this. And you come to this particular announcement of the baby born to Mary and Joseph. And you read it. And you're like, that's not quite right. You reread it. And then you say, honey, have you read this? No, what is it? Get a load of this. A baby boy has been born. This is what it says. To Mary and Joseph and to the shepherds in Bethlehem. To Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Come on, it doesn't say that. It does say that. A baby is born to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds and to the nation. To all the people of God. All times and places. The birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And this announcement, this birth announcement echoes what was spoken back in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. 
and I want to ask you, is He yours too? Is He yours? Do you claim Him too? Not just the baby born in Bethlehem, but the glorified, exalted Savior. Is He yours? Have you received Him yourself? Are you trusting in Christ? Is He yours? Do you believe in His name? Now, who is He? Let's talk about that. Luke's great concern in this gospel is that we be absolutely certain of the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is going to call us to follow Him onto glory by way of the cross. By way of the cross. And if we're going to follow the way of the cross, deny ourselves and take up our own cross and follow Him, we must be absolutely certain that He is worth following. That He is worth sacrificing for. You need to be certain. We must all count the cost and be sure that Jesus is worth that cost. And so one of the great questions of the first several chapters of Luke's gospel is, who is he? And we must all reckon with that question. We must all come to a conclusion about who is Jesus really? The angel identifies the baby born in the city of David as a savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the promised Savior. He is the Deliverer, the Redeemer of the people of God, the one who subdues every single one of our enemies, both those flesh and blood and those not, those outside of us and those within. He subdues every enemy and redeems us unto God. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. That is the Greek title for the Hebrew Old Testament word, Messiah, which means that he is the Lord's anointed. He is the anointed one. And we could talk about all of his offices. He is the prophet and the priest and the great king, the heir of David's throne. And he is the Lord. The title Lord means that Jesus is the supreme authority over all of heaven, over all of earth. But there's something I'd like to get into a moment, okay? Little lesson, a little extra education for you here this morning. Because when this title Lord is included in the New Testament, God was actually drawing the attention of his people to the name Yahweh, the personal name of God in the Old Testament. I want to show you how this is. Now, you're aware that the Old Testament scriptures are originally written in Hebrew, the language of the Israelite people. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but about 100 to 200 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a community of Jews in Egypt translated the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, which was becoming the language of the day as that part of the world was being what we call Hellenized. They were becoming Greek. And so they translated again the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew to Greek. 
when the Jewish translators encountered the personal name for God, Yahweh, what they didn't do was simply transcribe it into the equivalent Greek letters. So that whether you were saying the name Yahweh in Hebrew or Greek, it would sound the same. They didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because it had always been the tradition of the Jewish people that whenever they were going to read the name Yahweh, saying it aloud, they didn't say Yahweh. They replaced it with the Hebrew title Adonai, which means Lord. And the reason that they did that when they were reading aloud was because they didn't want to be even potentially guilty of taking the personal, sacred name of God in vain. So when the Jewish translators were writing the name Yahweh from Hebrew into Greek, again, they didn't just put it in the Greek equivalent letters, transcribe it. Instead, they replaced that sacred name with the Greek title, Kyrios, which means the exact same thing as the Hebrew title, Adonai. It means Lord. Now, I know this is a lot of information, and I don't have time to repeat it, but the New Testament writers, remember, wrote in Greek. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and those writers were very, very familiar with that Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. They used it extensively. In fact, often when we find them quoting the Old Testament, we can tell they are actually quoting from the Greek language, from the what that translation was called, if I didn't say it already, and I may have, the Septuagint. They were working from that. So they were very familiar with that particular translation. So when they wrote this title, Lord, for Jesus, they were not only saying that he is the supreme authority, which is what the name Lord means inherently. They were drawing an intentional, unmistakable connection to the name Yahweh, the great personal name of God in the Old Testament. So when the angel says to the shepherds, And when Luke writes to his audience that he is a Savior, Christ the Lord, we think, okay, who is he? And we realize that we are receiving the word that this is Yahweh in the flesh. The God of Israel. The only true God. That's who this baby is. Now, it's not God's desire that the shepherds only have information, only hear. He also wants them to go find all of this out for themselves. And so the angel says to them, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths made of silk and lying in a golden cradle hovering above the floor at the entrance to the temple. I mean, that's what you would expect if this is a Savior Christ the Lord. We're finding here that nothing is as we expect. A Savior Christ the Lord is lying in a feed trough. He's got this thin layer of cloth between him 
and whatever the cows are spitting out. At this word, verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, so not the whole group, a contingent, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't want to um, speculate, but I just can't help but imagine a little bit what it would be like to be one of the mighty warrior messengers of God who is designated for this particular assignment. Again, it's not all of the angels. It's a multitude of the heavenly host. A multitude of heaven's armies is given this assignment. Can you imagine, you know, um, just waiting for that day to arrive? This is the best day in all of the history of creation. And it is your assignment to be one of the multitude to appear. That would be fun. It would be fun. Because, you know, throughout your existence, you have, you, you exist in spiritual, a, a spiritual form. And, and now you get to appear in the nighttime sky over the earth, singing to men the praises of God. And I, and this is not, I don't think, how it was, but I'm just, I'm kind of projecting myself a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to apologize. I just think how, how, uh, how ready, on edge would you be to get that command, okay, go. And just, I wonder if there were any false starts. <laughs> you know, if anybody jumped the gun. I don't think anybody did, but I just imagine. Now let's look at the song that they sing. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Our reading, not the traditional, probab- well, not probably, but definitely more familiar reading, is not here reflected in the English Standard Version, I don't think in most contemporary versions. The the reading, and of course what I'm referring to, is that the goodwill toward men part is missing here. This is a reflection of the earliest manuscripts. Also this reading puts this into a... Wednesday night, ladies, you ready for this? It puts it into a parallelism, which is a hallmark of biblical poetry. So what we have here are two lines. And the three notes of the first line correspond to the three notes of the second line. Glory corresponds to peace. In the highest corresponds to on earth. And to God corresponds to among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now someone might ask, okay, wait a second. Who is God pleased with? 
And the answer is that God is pleased with those on whom he has set his electing covenant steadfast love. And we are not talking about them, anyone, the elect, meriting that pleasure, earning that pleasure. It's not because of anyone that God would be pleased with us. God is not pleased with our native lovableness and goodness and, and all of that. It is not because of human will or exertion. To use the language of Romans 9, it's not him who wills, him who runs, that God has mercy and that God takes pleasure. God is pleased with his elect by grace and grace alone. And I hope that you don't resent this particular doctrine. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your election from before the foundation of the world, that God would be pleased to make you his own, is purely of grace and at the price of God's beloved. And it should thrill your soul. It thrilled the angels because they're the ones thinking about it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now think about this for a minute. The angels are praising God in heaven for the salvation of men on earth. The angels are praising God for our salvation. Who are these beings that we know as angels? Man, there's a lot of messed up notions about angels. A lot of pictures that are just too cute. We need to get real. We need to get biblical. Angels are the heavenly worshipers of God. They are warriors. They are the guardians of the glory of God. They are, according to Hebrews chapter 1, ministering spirits. That's why I said earlier, existing in spiritual form. They're ministering spirits sent by God to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Step back to the beginning, more toward the beginning of time. When the angels made their decision, whether they were going to choose God or go to the side of his enemy, they were sealed in their choice. To use um, the language of Hebrews 2, I think it is. There was no help for them. God does not help the angels, but uh, surely helps those who are Abraham's offspring. There was no help for them. There was no second chance. There was no shot at redemption. Once they made their decision, they were sealed in that decision. And that's the way that it should be for you and for me. But God has had mercy on us. And God has been pleased, according to the purpose of his will, to choose for himself a particular people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He has been pleased to make these people a kingdom and priests to reign with Christ on the earth. And the angels, the Bible say, says, long to look into salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. They long to look into these things. Why would they long to look into our salvation? Why am I asking these questions? Because they are praising God. It's just weird. It's odd, I think. 
when you get below the surface of the text and really think about it, that the angels are praising God in heaven for the salvation of men. Why do they long to look into these things? I don't think at all that it's because they just want to unravel a difficult mystery. I believe that angels are like us. In fact, I have no doubt of this whatsoever. They are growing in their knowledge of God. They are growing in their knowledge of God. Has any finite being ever come to the limit of the infinite glory of the infinite God? Obviously not. No one has ever come to the the limit of God's infinite glory. We are all growing in our knowledge of God. We will ever be growing in our knowledge of God. We will never finally master him and solve him and be able to box him up and say, this is all there is to know. And so it is with the angels. And the angels realize something that you and I must realize. Why do they long to look into salvation? Because they have come to the realization that the supreme glories, the greatness of the glory of God, let me put it this way, the greatness of the glory of God is supremely revealed in the gospel of God's Son, Jesus. This good news that they are announcing. That's where the glories are. That's why they long to look into salvation. And the deeper they go in their knowledge of the gospel, the higher their worship. They're greater the knowledge of their, the greater their knowledge of the gospel, the greater their worship. Now, if the salvation of men thrills the angels and causes them to sing, and it's not even theirs, if they are singing so over a gift, not their own, what should be the response of the actual beneficiaries who have actually, truly received the blessings of the good news of Jesus? What should our response be? How should a man respond to the best news ever? He should long to look into these things himself, and that's what the shepherds do. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Nobody was standing around saying, oh, I don't know. They went with haste. Did they even feel the ground beneath their feet? Talk about adrenaline. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, it says, that is the scene, not it referring to the baby. When they saw, because it would have said him, when they saw the scene, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. We're trying to answer the question today, what should our response be to the salvation of God and Jesus, to this glorious good news, the good news of great joy? Look what it did for the shepherds. They could not stand still and they could not be silent. So they're reporting. They have heard and believed and then they have seen 
And now they are telling what they have heard and what they have seen. What is our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think one of the reasons that we stay silent, they didn't stay silent. One of the reasons we do, one reason, is because we have forgotten that this is good news of great joy for all the people. It's good news of great joy. And I think sometimes when we even think about sharing the gospel, we do so apologetically. Like, okay, I have something to tell you. You're probably not going to like this. And you're probably not going to like me after I tell you. But I need to tell you. Are you ready? You can live forever with God. Sorry, don't hit me. You don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve it. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come. He lived upon this earth a sinless life. He died for your sin and mine. And on the third day of his burial, God raised him from the dead so that you may live forever in the glory of God. You can't earn it. You can't buy this. Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to be saved. All that is required of you, all that you can do, is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. And embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord by faith. It will cost you here. But the end is glory with God. I'm sorry I said that. Don't hate me for it. And it's like we, we even think about that apologetically. And we say it so timidly and apologetically to people. And clearly we have forgotten. This is good news of great joy. How do you think that these shepherds spread the news of the birth of Jesus? Uh, sorry to wake you, but, you know, we've heard and seen... All of this. Good news of great joy. They told it with great joy. You better believe that they ran through the streets waking up the neighborhood to hear the news of Christ. Now the response of the people, we are told, is not what the response of the shepherds is. In fact, it's quite a bit lower. It, it says that they wondered at what the shepherds told them. It stirred them up. They were pretty curious. They probably talked about it around the office the next day and probably talked about it for several months until there was a more interesting headline to talk about. But it's clear that their response is not that of the shepherds or even that of Mary's because Luke begins verse 19 with the word but. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She didn't just wonder what it all meant and talk about it until a more interesting headline popped up like the people. Her son is the headline in her heart. And she thinks on her son like no mother has ever had cause to think on her child. The more she hears about her son, the bigger her son is in her understanding. 
the, the words that she has heard. Think of the announcement from Gabriel to her months before. Think of what she heard about John's relation to Jesus in her visit with Elizabeth and Zechariah. I think, actually, that she was there when Zechariah sang over his son John and had so much to say about her son Jesus. I think she was there. The more she hears, now she hears, Savior, Christ, the Lord. And all of this is accumulating overwhelmingly in her mind. He is not just the subject of a prophecy or two. He is the subject of the entire Old Testament scriptures. The covenant promises revolve around her baby boy. He is the fulfillment of all human hope. All the glory is his. She treasures up these things. And she ponders them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I wonder if they had any trouble being attentive to the sheep the rest of that night. That night had started out so routine, so ordinary and uneventful, and nothing extraordinary was expected. It would have been spent attentive to sheep. But God had sent one of his mighty warrior messengers. They had been engulfed in his glory, and they had heard the word that in Bethlehem, the Christ, the Lord, their Savior had been born. Rather than being attentive to sheep, God had turned their attention to the salvation of the nation and of the world in His Son. And to top it all off, maybe that's the wrong wording, but in addition to all of that, He's lying in a feed trough. The shepherds don't understand Christ in full yet. Mary doesn't understand Christ in full yet. There's going to be another revelation about six weeks down the road when Simeon has a very glorious and disturbing word about her son. But what she has heard and what they have heard, they believe. And they cannot stay silent about it. You might not have all the answers to all the questions that you would like to have. But are you certain that he is yours? That he came for you? Then in your certainty, sing to God in heaven and tell the world the good news of great joy. Let's pray. How do we express to you words of thanksgiving that would be fitting to what you have done? Words. How do we, how can we posture our bodies in a way 
that would be worthy of what you have done. Thank you for grace. Because we are not worthy. And we don't speak worthily. And we don't worship worthily. Thank you for grace, abundant and grace free. Jesus is the gift of your grace to us. And Father, I pray that we would have the response as much as we have the capacity for it. We would have the response of the shepherds and Mary. I pray that we would treasure the gospel in our hearts and it would never cease to be the headline, the good news of great joy. I pray that we would have the response of the angels to sing unceasingly your praises. And I pray, Father, that we would not hoard this good news to ourselves, but in love tell the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.